And in the process of trying to build essentially this private label food stamps card, I learned a ton about payments, which I didn't know anything about in the past, and uh, kind of invented this company that became Expensify. And so I'd say it, it def definitely seems like a meandering path kind of from the outside, but there is a strong sort of technology similarity mm -hmm. between everything we do. Like even at Expensify, uh, the very first thing that I built, which sounds crazy, was this custom blockchain replicated database, which sounds wild, but it had a reason behind it. It solved an actual purpose. And the reason I could do that was because I happened to have spent a bunch of time doing distributed programming for this peer-to-peer -peer content distribution startup. And the reason I did that was because I had to do firewall punching in P2P for my video conferencing thing. And the reason I did that was because I have to be traveling. So there is a, a, a method to that madness, if you will, but like most things, the path is only clear in the rear view mirror. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, and I'm joined today, as I often am, by my wonderful co-hosts, Cassidy and Ciara. Hi, y'all. Hello. Hello. Today, we have a great guest, David Barrett, who is the CEO over at Expensify. I get his emails. They are lengthy, they are passionate, <laughs> and uh, they... <laughs> engage with a lot of topics related to both business and technology. So after getting them for a while, I responded to one. I think it was when the, maybe the company went public saying, you know, there's a lot of ideas in here that feel like things we discuss on the podcast. We'd love to have you on the show. Um, and he agreed to come on, which was very gracious of him. So we're going to chat a little bit today about how he got into software and technology, some of like how Expensify is built, sort of the tech stack that it runs on and why they made those decisions. Um, and then talk a little bit about, yeah, like where software and technology is headed and some of the things David is passionate about in terms of using those tools uh, to change the world. All right. So David Barrett, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I will kick things off and then I'll, I'll pass the hat. But um, we often ask people, yeah, just, you know, not to date themselves necessarily, but tell us a little bit about how you got into programming. Uh, what was it that drew you to this, this field and kind of got you started? Sure. I mean, uh, yeah, it was interesting. So when I started, I uh, lived in the countryside and didn't have any friends that knew anything. I didn't know until college, a single person who'd done any programming whatsoever. And so I just uh, started programming when I was six. Uh, computer graphics and video games are my jam. At middle school and high school, I wrote 3D graphics engines back when people did that kind of thing. I uh, went to the University of Michigan, worked in the virtual reality lab. Uh, after that, I went to the game industry down in Texas and I wrote 3D graphics engines for uh, you know motorcycle racing simulation. Ooh. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, but then I realized that even I didn't feel like I had the time to play my own game. And it made me really reflect, like, who is this for? If I don't think my game is worth my own time, whose time am I wasting? And is it, do I feel good about that? And so I kind of got <laughs> out of game development at that. I uh, got into uh, push-to-talk, video conferencing, voice over IP, screen sharing, peer-to-peer uh, -peer content uh, distribution. And now, you know, it's an unlikely background for the expense report magnate that I've become. But uh, obviously... Uh, expense management, uh, payments, uh, uh, chat functionality, and you know, and then the next thousand years of uh, vision beyond that. That's very interesting. I'm wondering about what the to go from game development to eventually doing a business like Expensify seems like a pretty big jump. <laughs> what was that process like for you? Well, actually, everything is easier than game development. Like game development is harder than everything oh. else because <laughs> okay. it is the most advanced of everything. It has the most advanced AI in the market, the best, the best uh, graphics, the best sound engineering. It's the most reliable. Like everything about it is absolutely bleeding edge. And so if you can do game development, everything else is a step down from there. 
Um, and the and, most demanding consumers, obviously. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so I would say, uh, so I, I love games because it's super fun. It's visual. It's, you know, yeah. a lot of instant gratification and so forth. Uh, but fundamentally, the product that you're selling is just like wasted time. And I think that you can add more of a social component to it, maybe find some you know, justification there, but it just didn't feel satisfying to do it. And so I took the same background of like high performance um, engineering uh, and then went into then my dream was basically I had one of the very first laptops that had a webcam is this my favorite laptop I've ever owned. It's like called the Sony picture book. Um, it's basically just a keyboard with a small screen on it. And uh, this is like two th early 2000s sort of thing. And I was traveling around the world with this. And it had like this webcam on the top. I'm like, damn, I feel like every laptop is going to have a webcam soon. This is going to be cool. And wouldn't it be great if you could just, you know, like in, in Thailand or, you know, Croatia or things like this. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if you could just work from anywhere? Um, this is before digital nomad Wi-Fi was still spotty, things like this. Yeah. And so I'm like, oh, you know, I could just build a, a video conferencing tool uh, that uses kind of push to chat style video conferencing. Um, and then video conferencing is actually insanely, it's like computer graphics. It's like video games. That's, the latencies are, are very, very difficult. Like, there's a lot of challenging sound engineering, things like this. And so that put me into more of a peer-to-peer -peer programming background where I like to punch mm. through firewalls and things like this. And then from there, I uh, got recruited into a company called Red Swoosh, which did peer-to-peer -peer content distribution. So it's like, Bit, it's like BitTorrent for, for legitimate uh, content. So, uh, you know, smaller <laughs> user base, but at least you don't get you know, sued into oblivion either. And so we had a very small <laughs> exit and I was living in the, in San Francisco in the Tenderloin. And I was basically seeing my same, you know, houseless neighbors in the street every day thinking like, look, I mean, it's easy to get paralyzed when you think about global issues. It's like, ugh, I can't solve hunger globally. I can't solve hunger even in the city. It's beyond my means. But I, I have the resources to ensure that people on my street have a hat meal every day. Like that's within my power, but it's just super inconvenient to do. And so I'm like, well, what, what could I do to make this more convenient? And so I came up with the idea of, essentially like a, a private label food stamps card that I would just give out to people on the street and say like, hey, you know, if you look like you need a free lunch, use this and this card will work up to $10 a day, only once a day and only at restaurants that don't serve alcohol. And so that was my initial idea while I was just kind of vesting out my golden handcuffs after selling this last startup. And I'm like, yeah, it'd be fun, whatever. And in the process of trying to build essentially this private label food stamps card, I learned a ton about payments, which I didn't know anything about in the past. And, uh, kind of invented this company that became Expensify. And so I'd say it, it def definitely seems like a meandering path kind of from the outside, but there is a strong sort of technology similarity mm. between everything we do. Like even at Expensify, uh, the very first thing that I built, which sounds crazy, was this custom blockchain replicated database, which sounds wild, but it had a reason behind it. It solved an actual purpose. And the reason I could do that was because I happened to have spent a bunch of time doing distributed programming for this peer-to-peer -peer content distribution startup. And the reason I did that was because I had to do firewall punching and P2P for my video conferencing thing. And the reason I did that was because I have to be traveling. So there is a, 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 a method to that madness, if you will. But like most things, the path is only clear in the rear view mirror. It seems pretty murky and it's moving forward. Mm, I love the way everything tied together, though, to get you where you are now. That's really cool. Yeah, I also appreciate that you went through some of the most challenging programming <laughs> problems and industries that you can to get to where you are today. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that payments is interesting because it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's like high stake stuff. It's like it process billions of like real dollars. And yeah. so, and the security is intense and uh, the uh, availability requirements is super high. And so I'd say, like, I think technology, I mean, I love technology. Technology is super fun and interesting, but fundamentally, I like solving problems more. And I think that people too often get distracted by, you know, the latest whiz bang technology as if the technology itself matters. 
but the technology only matters as much as the problem it's solving. And I think people choose boring problems and then solve them with fancy technologies and they accomplish nothing. Maybe the, or rather, maybe they feel good. It's like a hobbyist. It's like, I didn't solve anything, but I felt good doing it. That's cool. Like, I'm not a hobbyist. I'm here to, solve, I'm here to get shit done and solve real problems in the real world. Mm. So, uh, David, we wanted to talk a little bit about sort of the tech stack at Expensify. Are you involved in that part of it now or do you have a CTO yeah. and you focus more on the executive side? Well, so actually we don't have a CTO. Uh, we don't have, like no one has any sort of like uh, hierarchy internally. Like the only titles we have um, are fictional titles for investors, basically, because if you talk to like, you know, if you're a public company, like, like who, who is this person? Like who's your chief product officer? Like, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of people who do products. I'm oh. like, we'll just pick one of them sort of thing. <laughs> okay. And so I'd say, um, but internally, no, our titles have no meaning. So there's no, there's no one in charge of engineering. There's no one that runs product. There's none of that. Everyone just shows up every day, does what they think is the best use of their time. Um, with basically, you know, the, the, no one asks permission of anyone else to do anything. They just do it. Mm. The mm. consequence, however, is that we vote twice a year on everyone else's compensation. We're actually in the pro process right now. And so all of our compensation Whoa. is determined by vote. Everyone in the company participates. There is no titles. There's no hierarchy. Uh, and so your, your compensation is entirely determined by your peers. And so, yes, you can do anything you want, but if what you do sucks, you're just not going to make very much money. Gotcha. I would spend most of my time um, trying to please my peers, I guess, then just sucking up to other people. <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, contributing pull requests constantly. Um, <laughs> but, but actually, but those two things are the same thing. How do you suck up to 140 people? You just right. kick ass. I mean, like right. you just have to perform fundamentally. And so your question is how involved am I in the technology side? I would say, um, pretty involved. Uh, like I, you know, have root on all the servers. Um, I take a turn on pager duty. And so if shit breaks in the middle of the night, like I get woken up every once in a while. And, uh, and so I'm very involved in a lot of sort of the technology strategy. The layers that I work on are pretty stable. And so thankfully don't require a lot of changing. I'm not super involved in the application programming layer that I was pretty involved in actually the uh, selection of React Native and kind of the early prototyping and things like this. Um, I'm super involved in the product side, on the business side, and the financial side. So I'm pretty involved across the organization. That's really interesting that you take a pager duty round. That, that's or, that's really really cool because it's it's rare to find people who run companies, CEOs or whatever your you choose your title to be, um, <laughs> to to actually continue to contribute to code, especially where Expensify is. Well, I mean, I think it's, I mean. The way I like to see it is like we say, view ourselves as like a flat structure, but what does flat actually mean? And I think flat means that there's no thick, juicy center, meaning like everyone has to touch the real world in some fashion. Like everyone is either shipping code, talking to customers, working with auditors, doing something on the outside. No one's job is just to like think real hard. Because <laughs> like, I think that um, I, I kind of think, you know, the worst people in this industry are product managers. It's just, it attracts the worst people because, and I can understand why, it's like pure honey. It is all uh, authority with no accountability. It's like, yeah, I don't talk to customers. I talk to people who talk to customers. And I, I don't write code. I talk to people who write code. All you do is talk all day long. And if anything goes wrong, there are a million ways to shift the blame. It's like, oh, that feature sucked. Well, it's not my fault. I mean, like the people who talk to the customers informed me wrong. Or the people who built it, like they suck. They fucked it up, whatever it is. And so I think that um, we try very hard to say, like, no, everyone has to engage with reality, engaging with the customer, engaging with the outside world. That's uh, that's what keeps you fresh. That's what keeps you basically your perspective relevant, because value is not made by talking internally. 
value is made by shipping functionality to actual customers. And anything before that is just overhead. But I wanted to kind of rewind to something you said earlier about um, people building companies that solve simple problems, but do it in a really complex way. And I want to hear your take on how you have built Expensify to not do that. Because Expensify tackles a pretty, I would say, complex, high stakes problem. But it seems like since that's your philosophy, you would probably solve that complex problem in a really simple way. Yeah. I mean, there's probably a million ways to take this question. But I would, the, the thing that comes to mind initially and probably the most important and one of the most probably difficult skills for someone to really grapple with when they join Expensify, and it sounds so obvious, is that we don't solve anything if we don't know what problem we're trying to solve. Which again, sounds obvious. And so, but a very common thing that you'll hear in the halls of Expensify is you propose, it's like, you want to do something. They're like, okay, Stefan, what is the actual problem you're trying to solve? Like, uh, give me a problem solution statement. Let's define the problem. Uh, and the problem cannot reference the solution. Like, for example, we'll say an inverse problem solution, uh, an inverse problem statement would be, it's like, uh, problem is, I don't have a car. Solution, got to get a car. Like, that's not a real problem. Because that's actually not getting to the heart of what you're trying to solve. The problem might actually be that I can't carry this bag of groceries home. And then thus, the solution is get a car. But if you define the problem this way, like, well, actually, it's just a bunch of other solutions. Like, you could just call Instacart, whatever it is. There's a million different ways to solve it. But you can only have that discussion once the problem itself is specifically called out. So we are ruthless internally about demanding clear problem descriptions, even for things that sound totally obvious. Because I think once someone says that it's obvious, that's a sign that it's not. Because if it were obvious, you would just say why you want to do it. When you say it's obvious, that's actually a cop-out of actually giving a real description. And so we're always basically ruthlessly figuring out what is the underlying problem that you're trying to solve. Second, we spend more time talking about the problem than the solution itself. We say like, is that a real problem? How how real is that problem? How many people experience the problem? How sure are you that's a real problem? Things like this. And so it can actually be quite frustrating for many people who join the company. They're like, what are you talking about? Everyone in the industry does it this way. Everyone agrees that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we even talking about this? It's so obvious. I would say, if it's so obvious, then you should be able to answer these questions very simply. But the fact that you can't answer them means that actually we don't really understand what we're trying to solve here. And we're always trying to take everything down to these base principles and solve it in the most elegant and simple and scalable way. But when you sort of take away this obsession with basically elaborate solutions, most things actually, most problems don't exist, don't need to do anything. Like our, our most favorite thing at the end is like, oh, so once again, the answer is do nothing. We're like, yeah, <laughs> great. Okay, cool. Like that is the best thing ever. And so I think that the key to simplicity is just focusing on uh, technology is a solution to a problem. And it's only as valuable as the problem it's solving because the vast majority of technologies out there literally do nothing. And so we try to say, no, it's all about focusing on delivering real value in the real world. When you are thinking about some of these problems, do you lean towards building or buying? Is, is, is that something where you're just like, oh, these tools are so, so complex, we might as well build it internally? Or do you say, well, they're so complex, but they solve the problem. Let's use this new tool that's third party so we can just solve sure. the problem and go forward. Um, I would say we end up building a lot more uh, because mm. our... But that's not because we're seeking to build. It's just saying when you get really crisp on what the problem is you're trying to solve, you realize that your most problems are kind of like bespoke, or rather they're they're very specific. And most problems aren't actually that hard to solve. Like any product that's off the shelf probably isn't that complicated. And so I'd say, like, for example, um, we use our own uh, database uh, for replication uh, because it's actually, uh, it's 
built for replicating over internet connections and not just sort of like high-speed lands and things like this. And so it's not like we decided from the get-go that it's like, you know, we're not going to investigate alternatives. But when we made this choice, like MySQL didn't even have distributed trans uh, transactions. Postgres didn't have transactions that could do land replication. Like this, the technology simply didn't exist. And so I'd say we, we end up building a lot because our requirements and scale are kind of significant, where a lot of the stuff that's off the shelf just kind of breaks down. But it's not because we didn't understand the options that were revealed. It's just that we weren't biased one way or the other. We're only going towards what's the best solution, and we don't really care if we have to build it or buy it. David, I want to sort of tee you up on this, but yeah, to get, I think to kind of both Cassidy and Sierra's question, she was saying, you know, how do you approach, as you said, your own philosophy of keeping simplicity and problem solving? And then Cassidy's question is sort of like build or buy. The the quote that was sent over, and I'll have you maybe defend it, is that you're interested in simple solutions to complex problems and advances in technology since the 90s have all gone in the wrong direction. Okay. I can admit that the 90s were a high water point for human civilization. Um, <laughs> And then from there, it goes on to sort of talk about some of what you do, you know, Ubuntu on bare metal, SQLite for database, C++ and PHP, no internal DNS. So just talk us through, I guess, yeah, exactly. Like a few of those details of the stack and how, um, as you lay that out, you know, I, I think it's, it's a good illustration of your overall thesis. Well, I would say, if we go back to like, okay, so what were the technologies available in the 90s? It's like, okay, there's bare metal servers. There's some like... Um, uh, some basic SQL databases. Uh, there's like, you know, PHP, things like this. So like basically everything, the basic trappings of making like a SaaS service were available. And what's happened after that? It's like, well, we've gone through like a million different frameworks. It's like, oh, you know, fuck SQL. It's got to be Ruby. No, 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 not Ruby. It's got to be this other thing or this other thing. It's got to be, you know, Ruby on Rails. No, Rails is stupid now. It has to be Angular. No, Angular is dumb too. It's got to be ActionScript, Typecat, like all this stuff. And it's like, oh, well, why are this? Oh, uh, we like these uh, languages because there's no compilation. What are you talking about? Every single modern development uses the most elaborate tool chain. It's much more compiled than C++, but just worse and things like this. And so I think that we've kept rediscovering the old sort of styles. And then C++, it's fucking great. It's like, you want closures? You want like any language contract? It's all there. It works wonderful. It compiles wonderful. It's super high performance. It works across all platforms. Um, and so I think that again and again, a lot of these technologies became solutions in search of a problem. And people are like, oh, you know, uh, uh, isn't SQL terrible? We need to go no SQL. It's got to go to like, you know, MongoDB and things like this. Oh, it's actually super hard to do um, uh, sort of some sort of like big query thing. Well, now we're going to make an SQ layer on top of our non-SQL database. And now it's like, now it's just a shitty SQL database. It's like, you could actually just have an SQL database that does all of that. Again and again, I think the worst defender has got to be AWS. I, I cannot understand why people like AWS. It is objectively bad in every possible regard. Like, um, and it blows my mind how people don't see this. Like, uh, I basically, I, like, you could go to anyone, probably 99.9% .9 of your viewers would agree with the statements like, AWS is cheaper, it's faster, it's simpler, it's more reliable, things like this. Everyone would be like, oh yeah, they just nod their head. Yeah, definitely. It is none of those, like um, from a cost perspective, uh, like, oh, so we operate like um, these 384 CPU, seven terabyte RAM or six terabyte RAM servers, uh, this giant monster servers. And they cost literally 10% of what you would pay in AWS bills. Like, because and it's even think about that because AWS, they're not in the business of giving away things. Like the cheapest you can get an AWS server 
is if you prepay for three years, but the, the cost of prepaying for three years is slightly more than the actual hardware cost. And the hardware cost has a much longer lifespan than three years. You're actually paying like a 10 times premium for AWS. I, I can go on and on about all of this, but like again and again, when it comes down to like, what is the actual problem you're trying to solve? And what is the simplest solution to it? Almost always the solution is like the oldest technology because it was the very first thing that was, people figured out forever ago. Everything that like any new technology is coming out right now, it can't be solving that hard of a problem because what new problems have come out in the, uh, for computers in the past five years? They work exactly the same. Bits are the same. Your screen size hasn't changed. Basically nothing has changed since 2000, but we just keep changing technologies just for the fuck of it. <laughs> Um, I want to let Cassie and Sierra in because this is a topic we just discussed before, but I think some of that is, you know, every generation and let's say every new, you know, cohort or, or class of developers wants their crack at mm -hmm. yeah, writing the same language, but improving it a little, personalizing it. And then, you know, there, there are trends and fads and fashion and, you know, a sense of sort of like social capital within that stuff. So Cassie and Sierra, I'll step back. But I think that's why, yeah, you see that pendulum swing of like, Let's make it more complex. No, less complex. SQL. No, no SQL. You know, like back and forth. <laughs> yeah. And you, you, often you find you end up in the same place at the end, but everybody wants to, you know, run that, get their chance to run that race, I guess. But a lot of things are hyped up because a company has like good marketing, marketing, like whatever the, the language or the framework or the technology, whatever it is, might have like really, really like dope <laughs> marketing that kind of tricks people into thinking like this is the best thing since computers have ever existed and I know for myself as someone who was coming in like fresh into the industry there were certain things that everyone was talking about certain technologies frameworks like site generators things like that and I would be like okay I'm gonna try it out this sounds amazing everyone's talking about it the company seems like it's like they know what they're doing and I would try it out and I would be like this was a horrible experience for me and I think a lot of times that is because people get like trapped into the hype. Everyone is talking about it. So you start to get hype about it too. And then when you really sit down and think about it, it's like, oh, this maybe isn't so great. And I've had moments like that myself with certain things where I've like gotten really hyped. Like this thing is so great. It's awesome. I love it. It's going to be my new personality. And then after I like really start to like spend some time with it and build with it or try to build with it, I'll be like, oh, wait, this really kind of makes what I'm trying to accomplish harder than it needs to be. So I do see where you're coming from with that whole, like, I, I do think as a, probably as a society, honestly, we've gotten into the ha habit of like not really identifying problems at their core and just chasing after shiny new solutions just because their ideas yeah. seem cool. I, I think the pendulum is very yeah. real of like people trying different things and it's not necessarily just in one direction either. It's It's one of those circular pendulum anyway <laughs> it's, it's, you know one of those yeah one of the one of those things they're in like museums yeah, with you the end clock. up in the same place anyway. yeah exactly yeah right. yeah it, it's it's a very real thing like just as an example if you look at web development over the past decade or so there it was everything is static no everything should be rendered on servers no everything should be single page applications oh actually no servers are good oh but what if we did <laughs> static again and it's right. it's it's all the same thing where like yes we're probably optimizing certain aspects of each of these things better but we're all solving a lot of the exact same problems that we've been solving right, right. forever. Yeah. So let me take us uh, like a little bit in, in, in a forward looking direction now. Um, David, you just, you, you just talked a bit about sort of, yeah, like the things from the nineties you think are still good and sort of the futility of solving the same problem over again. 
But are there things that are happening now in software technology that you're particularly excited or enthused about? Um, I know you said you, you tried out blockchain before it was blockchain. So I guess first I should ask, are you Satoshi? Because if that's true, we'll, we'll use the rest of you to discuss that. No. Okay. Yeah, we can change, amazing, um, change up sadly. everything. So yeah, what, do you, what gets you excited when you look out at the technology landscape? Are there things that you are on the roadmap for Expensify where you're hoping to you know adopt or move in that direction because of what you see? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that I would say, again, the technologies themselves don't super excite me, but I think the problems that can be solved with them do. And I think that uh, one kind of like maybe challenging idea is that all of us grew up during a period where th there was a steady drumbeat of tech disruption, basically like every 10 years or something like that. And so we've just gotten to this habit of thinking like, of course, of course, digital technology is disrupted every 10 years. It's always been, it always will be, is kind of the idea. Um, but I think there's a, a radical possibility. Like, what if there is no next big thing? Because most industries don't have a big thing. They just, they just mature. Like oil exploration, it's just oil exploration. It's basically the same and it stays the same for a very long time. Like maybe you go to fracking and things like this, but like by and large, at some point you just kind of perfect it and then it just gets incrementally better. Like I would say, and I think that when it comes to disruption overall, people I think over over focus on the technology side and they ignore the business side. What makes the, the disruption cycle happen isn't that a new technology came out. It's that a new business model was enabled and that business model was more efficient at acquiring customers than the one before it. Like, you know, computers initially sold through governments. We're gonna sell like one to each nuclear power, like six in the world. And then it came out through uh, large corporations. And then there was like mini computers sort of through field cells. And there was like retail through some, uh, PCs through retail, and then online. And then basically, or like mail order was a big thing. Then it became online. Now there's no software, it's SaaS, then it's in a laptop, then it's in your phone. And then it's still on your phone. <laughs> Like basically your phone is the same size. It's hilarious how ever Apple has used the exact same advertising campaign for a decade now. It's like shot on iPhone. <laughs> it's like, it still is. It's, it's not even saying it's the best camera. It just says like iPhone exists and has a good camera. Um, and I think it's amazing that like, if you open up your phone right now, most of the apps in the home screen were probably made around 2008. And you probably haven't changed your home screen in the past five years. Like maybe you edit TikTok, maybe. But like, <laughs> not much has changed. And I think that's like, so for the next 10 years, your phone's going to be the same size. It's the size of your hand. It's basically like, nothing's really changing. So the business model isn't dramatically changing. And so I don't know, we might not have a big tech disruption. And so when I think about the future, I think much less about, you know, what's the new fancy technology that comes out and more about what is the next business model that's going to come out. And possibly, maybe there isn't one. And so therefore, the future is less about radical new use cases and more about consolidation of existing use cases. Like, why does there 500 apps do the exact same thing? I, I just want one app that can kind of do it all. And so I think the future is going to be more about a super app concept where uh, a world of like, are you in the Google super app? Are you in the Facebook super app? Which one is kind of your home turf, if you will? And they're just going to kind of expand that. I think it'd be a hard time to start a new startup right now because there's just not a lot of room. And it's easier than ever to write technology. It's easier than ever to raise money. It's everything is easy except for the one thing that matters, and that is acquiring customers. That is harder than ever. It reminds me of an episode that we had on the podcast somewhat recently. In the past few months, we had uh, Alex Obernauer on the podcast, and he was talking about like what does a future operating system look like, and it addresses a lot of what you said because. Mm. It, so many things have stayed the same for so long and we just accept like, this is how notifications work. This is how apps work. This is how this, this is how that. 
works. And uh, he's kind of done a lot of research and questioning on what if we change notifications to be more driven by you rather than someone trying to get your attention and, mm. and kind of reversing those kinds of concepts. And there's nothing tangible out of it besides the research, but it's an interesting perspective. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think there's like the macro picture as well. For me, the biggest change has been the pandemic and like moving away from the city, moving out into like a rural space and the ways in which the technology I use now like flexes in a different way. Um, and, you know, I can be on Slack and email, move to a different part of where I'm at and jump on a podcast. You know, it's all mediated over software, then run back and do some farm chores and then like, you know, finish up a slide deck like from my phone. So, you know, like that is old technology, but it has like a, a new application for me because the world is kind of changing yeah. around me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think the the interesting thing going forward is going to be about um, this whole idea of like the new work-life balance and that the idea that you have to go to an office, like that idea is gone. Like it's never going to come back. Like any business that required you going to the office must have died by now. So every business that has survived cannot claim that that's an, a, a necessity going forward. But we haven't really figured out, well, what does it mean if all my employees can work anywhere? I think that um, it's like historically you could only work with people that were literally within spitting distance of you. But now it's like you can work with anyone. But the next constraint is really time zone. You can work with anyone so long as they're in a compatible time zone. The next barrier after that is how do you work with people effectively in different time zones and moving away from kind of a, a synchronous management style towards an asynchronous management style. And I think there's a huge opportunity that comes from that. But also, it's, it's like the difference between single-threaded programming and multi-threaded programming. It's just an order of magnitude difference. The organization itself is a completely different company if everything is designed to operate asynchronously without reliance upon any time zone. Yeah. That's literally what we're solving at remote right now. Like we're, we're saying, okay, what does the workplace of the future look like if we're everywhere? Because we have, I have coworkers who I work with, chat with, who are in Korea, who are in Israel, who are in South America, all, all over the place. And it's completely async and it's very different from what I've experienced mm -hmm. before. Yeah. And we have to figure out, okay, if we want to solve these problems for other companies, how do we define what the future of work look like, looks like in terms of flexible hours, a universal time zone of some kind, async work in general, right. and, and what do meetings look like if people aren't able to come because they're on the other side of the world sleeping? I yeah. think the, the ones we're going to lose out is the, 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 that fat middle, the middle managers that David managed, but mentioned before, are the ones who lose out when it's all async and project driven and about, you know, mm. do you deliver for That's your colleagues if they're, you know, like... There was a question, right. workplace is my favorite stack exchange. It's where people go to uh, ask awkward questions. They're like afraid to ask their colleagues. And it was, uh, <laughs> we hired this developer remotely to do you know a project for us, but I see them playing on Let's Code two or three hours a day during the workday. Like I can see them online you know, playing games when they're clocked into work. And the answer from the top three answers were just like, well, do they deliver the projects on time? And if not, then you should be you know setting different deliverables or like talking about that. And mm -hmm. if they're delivering the projects on time and wasting time coding, maybe they need a bigger projects. You know, it wasn't like shame on them. It was like shame yeah. on you as a yeah. manager for not, you know, that's your, your thing to figure out. It's up to them to decide how to spend their time if they can deliver what you ask them to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. Uh, on the topic of meetings, um, one thing that we've started doing is, so we actually don't have any group meetings really. Um, like I, I, I meet with one group of people a month or a week. Um, and then we do a bunch of one-on-one -on -one meetings, but basically there's no team meetings um, of any kinds. Um, but we do what we call Slack meetings, where we'll schedule a time where everyone's going to go in this particular room. Someone will moderate a discussion with a bunch of threads. 
And then we will intentionally leave the conversations unresolved for at least 24 hours to let everyone in the world participate in that. And I think that this idea of figuring out how do you use the new tool, it's not like chat is new, it's not even like threads are new, but trying to specifically use these old tools in new ways to enable an asynchronous work style. I think that's the challenge and that's what drives the modern business today. Yeah. One thing I want to mention that I think ties all this together too, as you mentioned earlier about how um, one of the problems now is that we have the tools, we have the problems, and the disconnect is knowing what customers need and want and being able to reach them to give them the solutions that they need. Um, so I think that's probably a problem that in tech we'll start really thinking seriously about because we, in a big way, we do have most of the tools that we need to solve these problems. I think the disconnect is really knowing how people need those tools to be applied now because things are really changing, right? Like we just talked about how work-life balance, work-life culture is like changing dramatically just over the past year and a half with the pandemic. Oh, actually two years by now, but anyway. anyway. Coming up on a very special anniversary. I know, but It's just like, how do we use these tools that we've had for years, like Slack or like, you know, other things, tools like that to fit our problems, solve our problems now dealing with like time zones and things like that. So and that's just one example out of like a myriad. And I'm interested in seeing how like tech companies are going to figure that out and if they will. So, yeah, right. It's interesting. Um, so, David, maybe we'll give you a chance at the end to, yeah, if there's something in particular that you're passionate about or you want to talk about, we can. Do you want me to throw it in that direction? We can just wrap it up here. It's, uh, I'll, I'll let you decide. Well, I would say, like, you know, something um, I'm passionate about, as I said, is always using technology to solve hard problems. And I think the hardest problems are not really in the workplace, honestly. Mm. Like, um, internally, we have this concept. We say, like, a life well-lived is one uh, where you're living rich, you're having fun, and you're saving the world. And I like the bombastic phrasings of these because they're all just sort of out there. Like, and, and, and kind of put some structure in what we mean by those. When we say living rich, it means that your boring average day is amazing. Like you work, wake up in a comfortable bed, someone you love, you go to work, you're inspired and energized, you're challenged, you come home and you have the time, resources and energy to spend it on you know, your family and the time around you. Like, but that should be every day. That's not like, that's just a baseline. Like having fun is not like, Xbox fun. It should be, you're always thinking back to that last bucket list thing that you did. Like, oh my God, wasn't it amazing? Amazing thing we just did. That's once in a lifetime thing. And you're always thinking to the next thing. You're always in that trough between two bucket list sort of items. That's having fun in our mind. But both of those are sort of an incomplete experience. We'd like this idea of, of saving the world. I like, again, this outlandish phrasing of it. It's not like, do your part or don't make things worse. It's like, no, no, no. Let's actually pick hard problems and then genuinely put in place scalable solutions that will ultimately solve these hard problems. And it's a more optimistic and engaging uh, approach towards basically trying to be a good global citizen. I feel like there's so much apathy and sort of skepticism and sort of cynicism around what can be accomplished with technology and so forth. It's like, yeah, you know, we've proven that social media can ruin the world, but can we prove it can save the world? Like that's a harder problem. And I think that rather than just criticizing the first generation of this stuff. Because like we're still pretty early into a lot of these technologies. We're still figuring this stuff out. Let's not give up hope for the internet and for social communities and things like this. We just need to have a new version of them. And so I'd say everything we're doing as technologists shouldn't just be like, you know, solving the problem right in front of us, just making money or whatever it is. I think we should be always using our positions of influence and creativity to think about 
the the the, the huge uh, uh, topics, whether the you know, uh, their equity inclusiveness, whether they're uh, just ensuring that everyone has the ability to live rich and to have fun. Like that's what we think saving the world is. And that's everyone's job. And I think it doesn't matter what you're doing. Like I run a freaking expense reporting company and somehow we're involved in all of these social issues. If I can figure it out, I'm sure that you can too. Um, all right, everybody. It is that time of the show. We like to shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge, somebody who came on Stack Overflow, found a question with a score of negative three or less, gave it an, an answer that got up to a score of 20 or more. You may have heard of this uh, individual, John Skeet, awarded uh, February 7th. Is a ternary expression possible for this construct? John Skeet, the guy does not stop. I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us, podcast at Stack Overflow with questions and suggestions. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Cassidy Williams, head of developer experience and education at Remote. You can find me at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. And I'm Sierra Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Apolograph QL. You can find me on Twitter. My username there is Ciorio, that's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. And I'm David Barrett, the founder and CEO of Expensify. You can find me anywhere at dbarrett. And definitely check out our page, we.r.expensify.com if you're interested in a job. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.